0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's just turned four o'clock and
1: it's Tuesday home time with Joan Bartlett and thanks to Chris. Hopefully signs that violence is over in Zimbabwe. Peter Murphy's been looking at what's been happening there. The MAPWA Medical Association for the Prevention of War report with Dr. Margie Beavis. Anti-war activists active in the US, Kathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Possible awakening of the left in Indonesia with Australian academic Max Watts, who's now living and working in Indonesia and we'll be hearing the talk by Palestinian-American scholar and human rights lawyer Noura Arakat, who was in Melbourne 10 days ago. But first of all it's Mr Kevin Healy.
2: A week, Jane, listener, when our hearts go out to the poor, caring business class so straining under the yoke of government and stock exchange regulation that they haven't time to pick up a few little mistakes, highlighted this week by the new big supremo of financial whiz kid, AMP on the customers, David Morey for me. Ex-Big Supremo of the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, talk about the frying pan into the fire. David blamed the yoke of regulation for AMP on the customers' few little mistakes like charging the peed on without providing any services and ripping off big time. Leading lots of other corporate favourites of the week that was to back him to the hilt. The other risk with overregulation, David delivered his coup de grace. Indeed, the overriding risk, as our case proves, you can get sprung. David said if new ASX regulations being mooted prevented boards and directors doing their job, whatever that is, he, AMP on the customers, would ignore the regulations just when we thought they'd never not ignored them. On miscarriages of justice, our hearts not only go out this week to the poor corporate giants suffering from regulation, but spare a thought for poor Michaelia Kosh the workers as that little raid on a union office in the full glare of the tipped-off media Michaelia, as then Minister for Caring Business Class Relations in charge of the whole thing knew absolutely nothing about nothing, nothing, nothing has been referred to the DPP the Director of Public Prosecutions to consider possible charges come on, Michaelia knew nothing about it okay, her entire office staff spent the whole day orchestrating the whole thing but how would Michaelia have the slightest idea what they were up to? and injustice isn't restricted to true blue aussie what a miscarriage of in the Colombian constitutional court where the big aussie bloody huge profits bloody huge polluter offshoot south 32 billion plus was ordered to pay damages to communities around its nickel mine there it is doing its bit to help the local people through the goodness of its corporate heart and what thanks also ordered to provide permanent health care just because there's been a little bit of lung cancer and rheumatoid pneumoconiosis, which you get by breathing dust and particles in the seven indigenous and afro colombian communities surrounding the mine, especially when South 32 Bill Plus produced its very own medical report, which surprise, surprise, said there was no connection between the mine and all this disease surrounding the mine and south 32 bill plus said it's wrong that laws can be modified by a court process which is what normally happens but let's ignore that and we will comply with the law of the land but don't change the rules halfway through a very strong argument how dare they change the rules just because of a little bit of disease a little bit of lung cancer and pneumoconiosis Quite properly, poor South 32B Plus has sought to have the ruling annulled and, if not, threatens to seek international arbitration. And so, given Colombia has a long history of bending over backwards to appease great international corporates, including its military killing workers who kick up the odd fuss about wages, conditions, safety, then the evidence must have been overwhelming, exacerbating the terrible miscarriage of justice Poor South 32B plus is suffering. Can't imagine why the word suffering brings us back to this item, but nostalgic moment for us last week as a former regular Alexander burst back on the scene, quite promptly pointing out this nation was built by a long line of Downhams. That but for the hateful Parvenu Socialist government circa 1972, he would be rightfully Lord Downham. So in what will be hopefully the last we hear of him, just thought we'd reflect on two of the great moments of Alexander's invaluable contribution to nation-building. The first, cheering us up with his hysterical joke about domestic violence and bashing women. One of the great moments in True Blue Aussie comedy about one of the prime subjects for great humour. And didn't we fall about very, very funny and genuinely, genuinely contributing to nation building by being the straw that broke even for that lot and seeing them ditch poor old Alexander as opposition leader and potential big supremo. Phew, imagine. And of course, Alexander's brilliant diplomatic coup planting listening devices in Timor-Leste to assist that nation building resource giant Woodside with capital. And he sure did and does support capital. Woodside with capital and True Blue Aussie get their non-greedy hands on Timor-Leste's resources. Just like... Another beautiful nostalgic moment, just like Alexander's predecessor as Minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, grovelling good Evans, laughing and toasting in champagne, the carve-up of Timor-Leste's resources for the world's oil cartels, with his indonesia in other people's business counterpart, Arsiasitas, and former ACTU left-wing Vice President, then Minister for Trading Occupied People's Resources, Peter Cook, the workers, and Pete's counterpart. Well a devoted believer in tradition, Alexander, who by now will have received the prestigious week that was Spit the Dummy Award he won last week in a no contest, and now let's hope this is the last we hear of him. On nostalgia, remember our very bad regular joke back then at groveling good heavens so principled? jure recognition of Indonesia and other people's occupation of Timor-Leste and its violent consequences? jure in the crown is the oil in the ocean. On that Super Saturday, which prompted Alexander's spit-the-dummy winning performance... Well, I suppose it was Super Saturday, because the top team played the third team on the MCG in a two-candidate election. On that, on the Friday, Lord Rupert's perspicacious and finely balanced political analyst James Campbell builds under siege, and he knows it. The true blue reviews perspicacious and finely balanced political editor Philip Coorey. Labour's nuclear option might just as easily self-explode. Philip Curry, by the way, and it's illegal now to use the scab word, so I wouldn't dream of it, worked through the last Falfax strike. And also, capitalist review, same day, a brilliant think piece by Perspicacious, finely balanced head of the True Blue Aussie Institute for Progress, another invaluable think tank, Graham Young. Why, it's Labour that's copying the Longman protest vote. Another tough one for us, listener, but... Pick who got it wrong. Thankfully, big supremo Malcolm Tunnelbull didn't get it wrong. He never at any stage suggested the Caring Business Class Party had the slightest chance of winning. And chastised journalist who somehow got the impression he had given that impression. And listener must admit, it is amazing how we can get the wrong impression. I, I could have sworn. But Malcolm said it was so, so it must be so. "'Just left to ponder why he'd spend so much time and energy on something so hopeless.' But Malcolm said so, and Malcolm is an honourable man. So are they all, all honourable men. Apparently there's no honourable women, but maybe that's before Mark Atney met Cleopatra, or as interpreted by the Bard. But anyway, that most honourable of honourable men, Lord Rupert of Wapping, rubbing his hands excitedly as his relentless campaign to have the pejorative Dan government nailed for this rorts for votes issue reaches a climax. Front page up. The front page, double spread after double spread, perfectly timed four months before an election, Lord Rupert hopes, with a little help from himself, will correct the mistake four years ago when we, the people, got it so wrong a mistake Lord Rupert has never let us forget and allegations both major parties were involved in rorts for vote scandals has received six single column pars P2 Where you bury such items in Lord Rupert's whopping sin and even then twisted into an attack on the majority of Dan for daring play tit for tat how dare you raise the minor fact that the other lot did the same thing what's wrong God, this is naive, I admit it, even even before I say it, if they both rorted the public purse with nailing them both. But Lord Rupert knows that is naive and plain wrong. Justice on the one hand, a most distressing, unnecessary miscarriage of on the other. And Lord Rupert is an honourable man. Speaking of Lord Rupert, most disturbing headline in the whopping sin last week. Alarm! as thugs pose as cops. And we can understand the problem, because how can anyone tell the difference? And in turn, speaking of cops and thugs... No, no connection, whatever, but I'm prepared to bet, listener, we all had the same thought as news broke of the disastrous earthquake in Lombok and told us our very own Constable Peter Duffer, Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire, etc., was on the spot at some conference or other working his guts out for all of us, and our current Minister for Going Overseas all the time, etc., Julie Bash-Up the Workers, was in a plane on her way to Lombok to her guts out for all of us. Now, be honest, I'll bet we all had the same thought. We were knocked certainly to the floor, Pete said in his usual articulate way, presumably as opposed to being knocked uncertainly to the floor. Uh, and let's hope he hit it, hit it head first, which would avoid any damage. Finally, the cheer us up department on this momentous day when True Blue celebrates 25 million of us, the good news is our sundry industry lobbies from road freight to airports to construction et al predict a doubling of business in record time and then start again, while governments ponder how to provide the energy for all this without interrupting the headlong rush to the end of the world. Oh, and Malcolm assures us we'll celebrate the end of the world with cheaper energy prices, like the windfall benefits we gain from them privatising all this. Good afternoon.
1: And for more of Mr Kevin Healy, it's 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, 8.55am, Digital 3CR, to hear Steel Limits.
3: You can get
1: your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy
4: or online at 3cr.org.au forward
2: slash shop.
1: Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. On the 4th of April, the 50th anniversary of of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Seven peace activists entered Kings Bay Naval Base in Georgia, USA, for a nuclear disarmament action aimed at the Trident submarines that are based there. A number have been granted bail on strict conditions. The remaining languishing jails awaiting trial, possibly September, October. Then later in June, a... Voices for Creative Nonviolence Action began, it was a five-day fast outside the base where the activists were arrested in April. One of those was co-coordinator of Voices, Kathy Kelly, and I asked her what happened when she and her friends arrived at Simpson Gate in Kings Bay, Georgia. Well,
5: in a place called Kings Bay, Georgia, it's on the southern coast, Of the state of Georgia. It doesn't really have a very long coastline, but along that southern coast, a crawling bit, more or less, in the ocean floor are submarines that are armed with nuclear weapons. They have enough nuclear weaponry to some say create 9,000 Hiroshima's, and they're organized by the Kings Bay Naval Station. It's a United States naval base where in the Trident fleet named it you know, if you imagine like the three pronged Trident, that Trident fleet has nuclear armed submarines. You know, in we sense that the United States is an outlier nation because of that fleet and because of other nuclear bases and capacities the United States maintains. One hundred twenty two nations adopted in July of two thousand seventeen a treaty in which they agreed that they would work toward the prohibition of nuclear weapons, the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. The United States and eight other nuclear-armed countries didn't sign that treaty. They didn't negotiate it. They they just boycotted the whole process. A group of people following a tradition, uh, what they say in the book of Isaiah is beating swords into plowshares. That's a book from the Old Testament, and that's a beloved quote that's actually inscribed across from the United Nations building. When shall come the day when they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Well, this group followed a tradition of 100 previous actions and went into the naval base at King's Bay, and they set up crime scene tape to indicate a crime is happening here, a crime against humanity. And they poured their own blood to indicate that nuclear weapons cause bloodshed. They kill people. And they symbolically hammered on a sort of a statue of a nuclear weapon inside the base. And they hung banners. And then they waited to be arrested. And they now are in prison. Three of them are out on ankle bracelets to prepare for trial. Four are still in a a very, very primitive county jail in Georgia awaiting trial, and they probably won't be tried till October. They're called the Kings Bay Plowshares activists. You can read about them at kingsbayplowshares7.org. And these are all close personal friends of mine. I admire them intensely. And so a number of us, five and all, said, well, we'd like to do a fast in solidarity with what you've done. And we called it the hunger for nuclear disarmament fast, after we Included the fast, we went back to our homes to work on a walk. And the walk will be from Savannah, Georgia, at the General Dynamics offices. General Dynamics helping to build Trident submarines. They do that mainly in another state called Maine, also a coastal state. But they also supply the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia with weapons to clobber Yemen and kill people every day. And they also contribute toward the maintenance of armed camps where families of migrants are detained and sometimes children are separated from parents. So there's every good reason to start the walk there on September 3rd, and then we'll walk until September 14th and hold a rally outside the Kings Bay Nuclear Naval Station.
1: Just to go back to your fast for a couple of minutes, you didn't stay outside the base the whole time, did you? You travelled to other places?
5: Right. We um, held a vigil outside the jail for one day and we went outside the courthouse for another day and then we did three days outside the base.
1: And what was the reaction to the various places you went? How were you received?
5: Well, I was surprised, you know... People have been sending me emails saying, what are you doing? This is the South. But, you know, it is the South. It's a very hospitable culture in many ways. So I kind of made eye contact as cars went by, and I waved a lot of cars and waved and honked back. Now, there are others who stopped their cars, got out, and said, what time are you entering the base next time? Because this time, be sure you're going to be shot, you know, threatening things like that. But I'd say on the whole, there was curiosity or sort of a... um, and anxiety uh, because if somebody really were to befriend us every job in their area is related to the military and that could have a repercussion so for instance we did get very good coverage from a freelance journalist who got a story about us into a Georgia paper for the city called Brunswick. and I thought oh well you know how about some letters to the editor in response and you know I had my hand in writing sample letters to the editor, people were afraid to sign even a letter to the editor. And that's the kind of stranglehold the military has on us now in this country. People are very afraid that they'll lose jobs. And the economy is not such that people feel like, oh, well, I could move to another place or buy a different house or set up all over again finding education for my kids. And a lot of people that are in the military feel like, you know, maybe... They don't agree with everything they're seeing, but they can't leave because they can't afford it.
1: Have you been able to visit your friends who are still in jail and have been there since April?
5: Well, I don't think that will be possible. I myself have spent time in federal prison as soon as that would come up on the computer. I remember one time I thought, oh, maybe I can visit friends in a state prison, and they said, no, ma'am. I said, well, could I wait in the lobby then? No, ma'am, you can't wait in our lobby. Well... Okay, I'll ask my friends for their car keys and wait in the car. No, ma'am, you can't wait in our parking lot. I said, do you want me to stand in that cornfield over there? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. So I wouldn't be allowed in.
1: But they are allowed visitors. Um,
5: They are. It's very restrictive. A man in um, that prison can have one visitor who is not his wife or daughter, who is a woman. And a woman can have one visitor that's not her husband or son who is a visitor so it's very restrictive fortunately they will allow ministers and clergy people to go in so and then they can have visits with their lawyers and i'm hoping they'll be able to have a set of time when they can visit with each other you know this group is very close to one another and they need to talk with one another before they go to trial how far are
1: they from each other now
5: well, right now, Martha Hennessy is on an ankle bracelet in Vermont. Carmen Trotta is on an ankle bracelet in New York City. Martha was able to, to travel to New York because she lives in both Vermont and at the Mary House Catholic Worker. And then um, Patrick O'Neill is on an ankle bracelet and in uh, North Carolina. And then Liz McAllister, the widow of Phil Berrigan, is inside the Glen County Detention Center, as is Claire Grady, and then they're not able to talk to any of the other defendants. They might see each other, although they're in different cell boxes. And then two of the men, Steve Kelly, a Jesuit priest, and Mark Colville, are also in that Glen County Detention Center. And I think those two get to talk with each other.
1: Martha Hennessy was explaining to me that ankle bracelets aren't as innocuous as they might appear.
5: She has been able to do gardening and visit with her grandchildren, but there's a, I think it's psychological burden to knowing that you're under constant surveillance.
1: And she said she, that just the weight of the of the ankle bracelet, because she's a physiotherapist, I think she said that she's been able to cope with it a lot better than the other people would have been
5: oh how about that i don't know i it, when i see it on the ankles of carmen who was on video and and showed his ankle bracelet and patrick o'neill with whom we spent time when we were fasting I, it made me feel very sad when you think of the numbers of people incarcerated in, in the united states prisons it really is a reenactment of slavery and people their lives are ruined and they can't get ahead when they get out and they have these terrible memories and Many people arrive in the prisons after something like a night raid. You know, people burst into their homes and tie them up in front of their children and, and whisk them away. So there's a great deal of collateral trauma and collateral consequences from our prison system. So how to educate people about the prison system, about the military-industrial complex, about the consequences of our wars abroad and the war against the poor at home? I think because people are sometimes fearful... As I mentioned before, but also the media is much more prone to just drop in little sentences about foreign affairs or crucial issues and then focus a lot more on sports and entertainment.
1: And that's Kathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Forces for Creative Nonviolence, speaking to me about her latest adventure, pointing to the dangers of nuclear armed submarines in the United States and her friends in various jails and around the world, around America and others with dreadful ankle braces on them. You are listening for two cr 8.55, 3CR on your digital. You can be streaming on 8.55. No, you can't. 3cr.org.au you can stream and you can have a podcast also which comes from 3cr.org.au and have the podcast put into your computer and you can listen to it at any time you like. There is one other and I'll find that one out for you in a moment but the time now is just on 26 minutes past 4 o'clock. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. And that fifth one where you can listen to Tuesday Home Time and all the other programs on 3CR is called Audio On Demand, which means that for a whole week this program and any other program is there on the internet at 3cr.org.au and then after a week... It comes the next program. So you've got all those choices, no excuse to tell your friends about the ways that they can listen to 3CR, even though they mightn't be able to listen at the time of 4 o'clock on a Tuesday. On the program last week, trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy spoke about the seemingly violence-free presidential election process in Zimbabwe at the end of last month with both main parties through their leaders, son of PF Emerson Manangwagwa, and the Movement for Democratic Change, Nelson Chamisa, believing the vote would be close but peace would prevail. Unfortunately, that has not been the case. When Manangwagwa was declared the winner, Chamisa demanded that, quote-unquote, proper and verified results be released. This was announced at the Promptu TV statement at the Electoral Commission, after which he was removed by police. I spoke again with Peter this morning and asked him what has transpired in the past couple of days. There's been a return to calm
4: in Zimbabwe and a lot of commentary from many sides about the election result declared by the ZEC on Thursday being okay but there was a a seven-day deadline in which the candidates could lodge objections to the courts and so uh, on monday the mdc alliance objected to the uh, declaration of the election for president and uh, apparently for about 20 of the national assembly seats and there's two weeks in which this will be resolved by the court and um in this period then uh the inauguration of uh, Emerson Manangagwa as president has also been postponed until after that's resolved. I think it's now postponed to the end of August. There is uh, some reporting that uh, Manangagwa offered Nelson Chamisa a a ministry uh, in his government but that uh, Chamisa had rejected this because he thinks he's the president. um, But I think we're at the level of rumour at the moment because uh, there's no no direct statement to, the, to that effect coming from Manangagwa's camp. I think that uh, these are the important developments. The, the, the issues, issue of the election is not resolved, but it is going to be resolved through the Court of Appeal.
1: Very disappointing for everyone. Concerned, though, you were talking last week about the, the peaceful election process and then it turned ugly. Yeah,
4: yeah well, by the Wednesday uh, we, we had this terrible clash outside the ZEC building, and uh, it seems at least six people were killed by gunfire from the Army. There's an investigation being launched into this, and uh, there was also a lot of attempts to arrest people in the MDC Alliance camp, who were apparently identified as taking part in that uh, altercation and, and violence. There's also a lot of demands for at least one of the soldiers, if not commanders, to be charged also for using gunfire against people who didn't have firearms. But I think uh, it's probably important to say that it was a very violent situation and there was really an organised attempt to invade the ZEC and take it over with uh, people armed with clubs and so on, and that there was a lot of cars and shops burnt. So it was a violence.
1: Are you aware where these young people came from?
4: I think uh, it's... uh, you know, yet to be clarified, but uh, some of them were clearly linked with the MDC youth, and there were others who were actually chanting the word Kushongo, which is a reference to Mugabe, while they were involved in this, this event. So my instinct tells me that it's really motivated by the Mugabe camp, who've got a big interest in derailing the election overall and spoiling any uh, attempt by. Munangagwa to legitimise his presidency, uh, and I also think it's you know completely cynical, and the loss of life is so so wasteful and, and wrong, you know. And uh, so I think there will be some kind of settling of accounts about this event in the next month or two, and, and there will be some uh, retribution, I guess, or punishments on both sides.
1: How serious was the raid on the MDC headquarters?
4: Well, I think it was you know really heavy in the sense that. Uh, Police were outside the building and it was like under siege and then they, they got a, they got a uh, search warrant and went in and uh, they did arrest 20 or so people in there and seized computers and so on. It was like not a violent event, but it was, you know, obviously a fairly oppressive feeling for everyone around Harvest House. But then you got to see that, you know, some people had been killed uh, in the days prior. So, you know, it was... Um, It is a serious thing, and I don't think it's a simple matter of um, political payback or dynamics around the elections. That's not enough to explain the situation.
1: There could be more trouble when those who are arrested go to court.
4: I'm not hearing about it. No, there's there's definitely much more language of calmness, including from Nelson Chamisa. So he's he's defiant in in asserting that he won the election, which he he declared before the first vote was cast, but uh, he's now saying that it will be resolved through the Court of Appeal. So that means it won't be resolved on the streets. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of delays in the court system in Zimbabwe, and there's also lots of situations where charges are dismissed. I can't really predict how all this will go, but... If I was the government, hey, it's even an interim government, and, and witnessing uh, manoeuvres really looking like Mugabe ones, then you would have to be very concerned because of the huge amount of resources that uh, Mugabe has to use, and uh, his access to certain, you know, uh, sections of the military and uh, weapons and so on. So it's not something to be taken lightly if it looks like a Mugabe move.
1: Has he made any
4: comments? No, no comments since uh, his extraordinary media conference on the Friday before the election. Yeah, he voted on the Monday and uh, and then departed. So uh, there was no speeches there. We think uh, yeah, there's one more thing that's happened, but uh, I'm not sure the the legal steps that took place. But Grace Mugabe has now got no immunity from prosecution in South Africa in relation to the alleged assault on workers in a hotel there early last year. You know, this is another sign of other pressures being brought to to bear on the Mugabe group in response to these uh, maneuvers he's making. Yes, there was a very celebrated or notorious case where two of her sons had been uh, kicked out of a hotel uh, after causing damage to the luxury suites and they'd moved into another hotel and uh, they they were throwing parties and things like that. And Grace Mugabe came to Johannesburg to fix it up or see them. She took out a, a power cable and uh, started lashing women in the room. And she also, you know, allegedly lashed hotel worker, a woman hotel worker, and uh, injured her face. And uh, another hotel worker who was pregnant had a miscarriage, you know, as a result of the assault. So it was a very public event and uh, very much in the news at the time. And um, the first lady, as she was then, uh, was able to leave South Africa and claim immunity on the basis that she was the wife of the president. Uh, But she's no longer the wife of the president. And uh, so it looks like perhaps the current government of Zimbabwe has uh, informed the court in South Africa that they're not requesting this immunity. So, it's, as I say, it's a sort of political decision with a legal, through a legal means to put more pressure back on the Mugabe's.
1: Nevertheless, does she have immunity in Zimbabwe itself over the alleged theft of diamonds, etc.?
4: I don't think so, because uh, she's, she's now holding no no posts, you know. So, she's the one who's been suing, like several cases, about the cost of a diamond and, and so on. But uh, I haven't heard of charges being laid against her for stealing diamonds. I don't but, think that, that's happened yet.
1: Yeah, it could happen, though.
4: Well, I think there's you know, so much money and you know, unaccounted for, and it could happen. That's correct.
1: What's happening with all the other seats in, in the Parliament and various areas of Zimbabwe? Are they all on hold as well, as well as the President?
4: As far as I know, if there's 20 seats being contested in the Court of Appeal, those 20 seats can't be declared. But I think all the others are declared and, and not contested. Therefore, the week, you know, the seven days in which to, to lodge a protest has passed. So I think that all the rest of them are, are settled. Given 20, that could change the outcome uh, if it uh, goes against some um, pf wins. That might uh, get them below the two-thirds majority of the National Assembly, which they did achieve according to the ZEC declaration. So I think, yeah, there's something going on there, but really I think even if Pf lost all 20, they still have a majority. And uh, actually I'm not sure, but I'm just guessing that the 20 are Pf 6. The uh, other thing to realise in the National Assembly is that the most senior... Uh, MDC Alliance person who's in the Assembly is uh, Tendai Beatty and he's from a breakaway from the old MDCT. His, his party is called the People's Democratic Party. It's sort of an irony you know, that he might come out on top <laughs> and as the main opposition figure as against Nelson Chamisa because he'll be the main Opposition voice in the uh, National Assembly. There's some other senior MDC figures who are in the Senate, but that's not such a consequential house in the uh, Parliament. So I don't think that uh, they'll be able to play the same sort of role that Tendai bd can. I think uh, it's a little too early to call the situation, but I think it's uh, highly unlikely that the Court of Appeal will overturn the ZEC ruling and. Uh, Therefore, Nelson Chamisa won't have a role unless the, uh, the incoming government uh, offers the MDC alliance some share in the new government. pretty sure that that's a widely discussed uh, option and uh, that is, it's an idea being pushed from the MDC alliance. So there, a lot of the things that have happened in the last week perhaps can be seen as pressure to include them in the government. But given the outcome, Manangagwa wouldn't have a lot of motivation to do so. There's other things to consider too. That is, well, just who are all these ZANU-PF people who are now in the National Assembly and uh, how will they interact with a a Manangagwa government? And it may well be that um, he wants other people as well uh, as ZANU-PF people in his government for broader political management purposes. And um, that might be a really good thing. Uh, It's just that, um, you know, the the really terrible violence last Wednesday has certainly poisoned the situation a lot. Maybe with the air will clear in a couple of weeks and and we'll see. But without the inauguration, you know, we've got really an interim government through all of this month and we'll have to wait till September now, at least. If the Court of Appeal did overturn It could uh, order a new election for the president and that could be held on September 8th, which would have been a runoff date. could be that the court finds that the count was in error and that uh, Munangagwa didn't get 50% plus. That would cause a runoff too. Um, But if they found the whole running of the election was in fault and uh, there's just a new election required, there could be more than two candidates again.
1: (laughs) And while a level of uncertainty continues, it means that the, the business of government is sort of a bit of a stalemate?
4: I think so. And this, Given what's happened, especially last Wednesday, there's no way, I think, that uh, the international business community is going to, you know, smile on Zimbabwe now. It's going to have to wait until something's clarified about the character of the government and... Uh, the obvious violent potential in the situation, you know, would be uh, putting off investors. Uh, but I think um, the bigger question is not so much the investors as the attitude of the governments of the Europe and North America and South Africa towards the incoming government. Um, if there's a really a new attitude of confidence, trust, that this new government could make a difference, that is it could it could really cut back on the corruption and have a stable plan for the recovery of the economy, then government-led help uh, could lead the IMF and World Bank and therefore the broader international community back into some kind of managed recovery plan. That is what's needed. So, you know, I, I would still say that from the outside, all of us should be looking to that as the way uh, that things can get better and uh, it's very unfortunate that the election so far hasn't really made it clear that that's possible yet.
1: Thanks once again Peter.
4: Okay thank you very much Jan.
1: And that is Peter Murphy from Sydney, trade union and human rights activist talking about the recent election in Zimbabwe and hopefully everything is going to quieten down now and let the people get on with their lives. It's 4.42, 3CR. The 2018 Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on
6: the 11th of August at the Brunswick Town Hall. Stalls, books, projects and organisations fighting for a better world, here and abroad. Come for the stalls, stay
1: for the workshops. Topics ranging from Indigenous struggles and decolonization, climate change, anti-racism, Unions, Feminism, Refugees, Anarchy 101,
6: and so much more. Interested in a stall? Email us on info at amelbournebookfair.org. That's info at amelbournebookfair.org.
3: Or message us on our Facebook page, Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair 2018. A 3CR supporter.
2: The Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament presents Dr Joseph Gerson on Wednesday the 15th of August at 7pm.
4: Dr Gerson's topic is How Nuclear Annihilation Stands in the Way of World Peace. August the 15th, 7pm, Melbourne Unitarian Church, 110 Grey Street, East Melbourne. All welcome. Sponsored by IPAN Victoria, Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church, Quakers, Pax Christi, Spirit of Eureka, and the Victorian Council
2: of Churches. The Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament is a 3CR supporter.
1: Monthly Analysis of Issues of War and Peace with the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Margie Beavis. First, Margie. If possible, Australia being drawn further and further into the U.S. orbit, new military missions in Afghanistan and Iraq, they're always announced as non-combatants. We're just there training Afghans and Iraqis to kill ISIS fighters or kill their own citizens.
6: Yes, I think we do get increasingly involved, even domestically, the troops. that We've now got record levels of U.S. troops in darwin started off with just 200 marines rotating through in 2012 and we're now up to almost 1600 and this is yeah australia is just sort of drawn in joined at the hip and the strategic significance of having forces in darwin even is not really being examined everybody's just accepting it it does lock us in even more to what the u.s decides to do and we have very little control over our own foreign policy fence budget is, is ramping up enormously it's gone up by six percent this year and is is continuing to ramp up for the next 2025.
1: Yeah, it seems the so-called allies are all being told, you know, spend more money on military and make sure that we this is US stays on top. Yes, and also it's it's completely
6: obscure how much money we're spending to support these US troops in Darwin. Certainly both Obama and Trump put a lot of pressure on Australia to pay more to be part of the US alliance and, and really there is a significant argument that in fact being part of the U.S. alliance may make us more of a target rather than less of a target, just thinking again about Pine Gap and its strategic role in nuclear weapons bombing and in drone bombing. And yeah, yeah, I think we need to, we really, there was no debate when the U.S. troops arrived on our soil. It was just announced by Obama and then announced by Gillard. There was nothing in Parliament to say, did we want to have American soldiers on our soil? And certainly there's been very little discussion of whether we want to continue Pine Gap to be part of the drone killings in the Middle East or to be part of the nuclear weapons targeting.
1: And we have to remember that it was an Australian government who agreed to it in the first place. Oh, yeah. I mean, a a Labor government.
6: Yes, 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 definitely.
1: Where is the Nobel Peace Prize at the moment, Margie? We had
6: originally thought that the Peace Prize would be at the Hiroshima Day event, but Tim Wright, the ICANN, Campaigner who is helping with signatories to the treaty, the, the United Nations Treaty, he's taking it with him to the Pacific Island Forum, which is being held in Nauru, and there it's going to be shown to Pacific Island nations and their representatives, which is really important because the Pacific Island nations were very important in getting the United Nations Treaty. Over the ground, and there are also Pacific Island nations who have suffered terribly from nuclear weapons testing. So, whilst we're very sad not to have it at the Hiroshima Day event, we're actually very pleased that it's going to be going to the Pacific Island Forum because it's a very powerful symbol of how important the nuclear weapons disarmament is.
1: And while we're on issues nuclear, I know it's not quite the same, but there's the, the relentless push for the waste dump in South Australia, and a lot of publicity, especially from the ABC, at the shipment that went to France for the spent rods? Yes, the, the continuing
6: lack of planning is extraordinary. We have no plan for disposal of this waste. And what's really tough on these South Australian communities is that they are at risk, a significant risk, of being left with a temporary storage site for these, this intermediate level waste. The government is proposing two co-located facilities, one for the low-level waste, which needs to be kept safe for 300 years, and what they're proposing there fits with world's best practice. But the much bigger issue that's sort of like the main game is the intermediate level waste, which has to be kept isolated from the environment for 10,000 years, more, more than 10,000 years. And this is effectively being put in a temporary storage shed, and the government promises that we'll, down the track, develop a disposal plan, but it hasn't yet. It's been trying to find a site for this waste for 20 years, And yet again, there's another shipment going off to France where it will be reprocessed, but it will come back here. I mean, every country has to take responsibility for its own nuclear waste because it is so toxic. And there's a lot of enormous pressure being put on these communities to take this waste. And what's really interesting is there's going to be a vote in August. And with that vote, the government just, I think, must be very concerned because initially they promised 15 jobs and suddenly... A couple of months ago it became 45 jobs, which is hard to believe. But also then last week, I think the beginning of last week, they announced they were going to, instead of giving $10 million to the state government, they were going to give $31 million to the local community, which again suggests they're getting pretty concerned they may not win the vote. So this is a very highly contested process. There's a Senate inquiry looking into how bad this process has been, And I feel very sorry for the community because there are people who understandably think the jobs would be fantastic and who think the money would be a big boost for the community. And there's others who are very concerned about the future of their communities and what this means for their children and their grandchildren. So, And their grandchildren's grandchildren, and it will go down the line. So it's really, as I said, highly contested. And to split previously harmonious communities. I mean, there's families that are split. There's marriages that are having difficulties. There are lifelong friends who are not talking to each other. So it's very, very divisive and, and it's been a terrible thing for these communities.
1: And what are these communities?
6: There's two in Kimber, which is a grain-growing district about an hour west of Port Augusta, and there's one Wallabadina near Hawker, which is at the foot of the Flinders Ranges. That site particularly is, is completely absurd because it's the location is in the most seismically active part of Australia on a floodplain that's prone to enormous flash floods and very close to surface groundwater so that there's any leakage. It would be very easy to get to the groundwater. And finally, very close to some really important Aboriginal sites. So it's sort of like what are they thinking? If you had to pick a bad spot in Australia, that one particularly is bad, but also that people of Kimber are concerned about what this facility would do to their reputation as clean, green grain growers.
1: Are you aware what other countries who produce this waste do with their waste?
6: Mostly it's put into dry cask storage and stored at the site of the reactor. There are a number of countries who are developing waste. There's two countries, Sweden and Finland, who are probably going to open proper, deep, and I'm talking four kilometres down, waste facilities. And I think Finland will be first with Okoluto in about 2025, and Sweden will probably open theirs more around 2000. And 30, but they've been working on getting proper deep disposal for their own nuclear waste for about 40 years. And so they've tested the soil, they've tested, they've done all sorts of things. Because there really are no functioning high level waste dumps anywhere in the world. The Germans had a go at it, put some waste down a couple of salt mines. But once again, that leaks into the water table, so they've had to. They're now spending millions and millions pulling it out again, and we'll have to decide what to do with it. With high-level waste, they cool it down in a in a pool for about 10-30 years beside the reactor, and then they put it into dry waste canisters, which are thought to be good for about 60 years.
1: Where in Australia is the expertise to do something like this?
6: Well, obviously at Anstow. I mean, Ansto is the place that should be, particularly the intermediate level waste, should be guardian of this waste until they work out proper disposal. The other thing that is really, the Medical Association Prevention of War have been really pushing for an inquiry into radioactive waste production and management because the first principle with any toxic waste is to reduce production at source and quite to the contrary ANSTO is planning a massive expansion of production. I was in the middle of it and did this with very little consultation, but certainly not consultation of the people who are going to end up with the increasing amounts of intermediate waste.
1: A little bit different, Margaret. I know you're a bike rider. Are you on off to Canberra for three weeks on a bike?
6: <laughs> Look, ICANN's got this fantastic bike ride that's happening. I'm actually not going to the before. I knew the dates. I had planned to go cross-country skiing, so I won't be. But the send-off in Melbourne is on the 2nd of September, and if people go to the ICANN, website, the ICAN, ICAN Australia website. This bike ride should be fantastic. It's going to go for three weeks. It's it's taking the Nobel Prize medal from Melbourne to Canberra, symbolically, since ICAN started in Melbourne and since our politicians in Canberra really need to sign on to this treaty. So it's going to be about three weeks. They've got a lovely trip planned. You don't need to be a person in Lycra to do this trip. We're hoping a lot of people in Melbourne will join us for the one-day send-off on the second. We're also hoping some people in Canberra will Join us for the arrival in September on September 20th, Parliament House, which is the one-year anniversary of the United Nations Treaty opening for countries to sign. So it's very symbolic. I mean. We call the the Nobel Peace Prize medal the bling. It's the nickname in ICANN for this bike ride has been the Fellowship of the (laughs) Bling. So we're all taking the bike ride, taking the the medal up to Canberra. So it should be a tremendous event. We're hoping the send off in Melbourne will be a fun event too. Just that Sunday, September. If you want to join the send off in Melbourne, it's at nine thirty on the steps outside the steps of Victorian Parliament House, where there will be some speeches before the riders take off at about ten thirty. The first leg will just be a lovely, relaxed ride up the capital city and Darabin Creek bike paths heading north. So it should be a lot of fun.
1: Do people have to commit to the whole three weeks or can they join the, the ride different places?
6: Oh, absolutely. There's different chunks of the ride, certainly a week at a time. There's, there'll be a number of people just doing a week or a number of people just doing a few days. But certainly you don't have to commit to the whole three weeks. And as I said, on the ICANN Australia website, there's all the details.
1: And finally, Maggie, an ongoing campaign which you've spoken about before and that's the, the Australian War Memorial accepting funding or sponsorship from the companies making weapons. And it's all the more galling, isn't it, that the head poncho of the War Memorial is a doctor.
6: Oh, yes. It's very, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. They want to, I think it's another 500 million to put in a basement the basement's going to be full of military equipment to showcase military equipment. Where When you think that the weapons manufacturers are being approached to pay for some of this, it's reminiscent of asking the tobacco companies to pay for a hospital. It's sort of like they are the people who profit from war, and for a huge amount of money to be spent to display military equipment is really so inappropriate that we're very keen to this to be a place of commemoration and you don't have to have billions and billions to be able to respectfully commemorate war and this is becoming more like a theme park than it is an actual place of respectful commemoration and we're really keen to try and stop the commercialisation of the Australian War Memorial.
1: And the good doctor?
6: (laughs) Brendan Nelson. Yes, the basement's now referred to as Brendan's bunker. I think he sees this as... An opportunity to expand the war memorial and expand its influence, and I think it's not about commemoration anymore. I think it's more about being big and making an impression on the on the Australian community by its. Yeah, as I said, it's becoming more like a theme park and less like a place of commemoration.
1: All right, thanks, Margie. Okay, and that was Dr. Margie Beavis, the secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and lots to do there. Get on to the ICANN Australia website and think about a bike ride beginning in 1965 and continuing for a number of years hundreds of thousands of Indonesians some say up to a million people were slaughtered at the hands of the Indonesian military 53 years later the legacy of those years of terror mayhem and destruction linger the historical knowledge of those years has been denied to the people not only under the brutal rule of Suharto, but in the 20 years since his removal from power and the establishment of what Indonesians called democracy. According to academic Max Lane, there are very early signs of the resumption of the consultation buried in 1965. Even the word resumption disguises the reality. It is really beginning anew, but as yet not in the party political system, but in the spheres of social justice and democratic rights activists. I spoke with Max at his home in Jogjakarta, Indonesia, where he is the visiting lecturer in the Faculty of Social and Political Sciences at the Goha Mada University and visiting senior fellow at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies at the Yusuf Ikak Institute. He's also the author of Unfinished Nation, Before and After Suharto and Catastrophe in Indonesia, and the translator of many of the works of Pramida Anata Tua, regarded as one of Indonesia's best writers who survived persecution, imprisonment and censorship. Max, you see Indonesia as a country with no left, at least in the political system, Take us back to the early 1960s in Indonesia. Can you imagine what the society would be like today or could have been like today if the left in all its forms had not been exterminated? In other words, where was Indonesia heading that was seen by the powers at the time, both internationally and locally, as a threat to their world order? early
0: 1960s. You have to remember that People's Republic of China was going through the Great Cultural Proletarian uh, Revolution. Vietnam War was uh, heating up. There was a guerrilla communist guerrilla army in Malaysia and in Thailand, and the prospect of Indonesia, where half the population was actively supporting Sukarno's leadership, taking Indonesia in a socialist direction, aligning it with. China and Vietnam. I think that's what the ruling classes in the United States, America and Europe were scared of, that that scenario from China to Southeast Asia becoming a communist or socialist would actually happen.
1: Who was Sahato back in the early 1960s? Why was he the one propelled to direct the massacres?
0: Well, Sahato was, was, was was, of course, a senior officer in the... In the Indonesian Army, and by the early 1960s, he'd been appointed commander of the Strategic Army Command, which was the section of the, of the Indonesian Army that was uh, most ready, that was prepared, that was, was a combat force, that was most ready to be able to move into action at any time. So he was very strategically placed in terms of being able to mobilize the active part of the Indonesian army at that time. And politically, he'd been playing a game of keeping on good relations with both left and right and centre.
1: And what was the interference by countries like the US and Australia?
0: Both the United States and also Australia had been maintaining direct, friendly communications with the Indonesian army, and of course in the international scene they were propagandising heavily against... Sukarno and his government when in September-October 1965 the opportunity arose for Suharto to make to make a move and try to seize power there certainly was uh, direct assistance to Suharto from the United States and Britain in the form of providing information about who they should arrest and also uh, also providing some transport facilities And Australia helped by broadcasting into Indonesia via Radio Australia, propaganda or or misinformation that helped the army carry out its and Suharto carry out its program.
1: We talk about 1965, but it was much more than 1965, wasn't it? The massacres.
0: Well, the actual massacres themselves mainly took place late 65 and through uh, 1966 and a little bit into 1967. The Communist Party tried to rally a guerrilla resistance in 1968, and that was put down, and there was another, some more arrests then. And then, of course, uh, having eliminated the, the very large left, it, with maybe a million people killed and tens of thousands arrested, there was 33 years of pretty solid dictatorship by Suharto and the army until 1998.
1: What happened to all those who were arrested? Were they finally released or did they die in jail?
0: Most of those who were in prison were released in the late late, late 1970s. Of course, there were deaths in the prison camps, but the majority were released in in the late 1970s, although they had severe restrictions put upon their activities. So, of course, many of them now are very old or have have died in recent years uh, due to their age or illness.
1: And what if Indonesians being told about that period of their history at this time of 2018. What do people know?
0: Well, if we take as an, as an example what is taught in the, in the schools through the history textbooks, it's basically, it's basically taught that in uh, September 1965 the Indonesian Communist Party and, and with its allies in the, in the army attempted a coup d'etat Killing several army officers in the course of it, but that, that coup was suppressed by President Soharto, who saved the country. In the textbooks and in official official propaganda, and in many ways the textbooks are the main vehicle for 50 years on. There's almost no mention of the massacres at all that took place 65, 66. That's uh, pretty. I don't think it even gets one sentence. When it is discussed in public, on the rare occasion that comes up as an issue, uh, sometimes there is a reference made to the killings, but they're depicted as having taken place spontaneously, with ordinary people doing the killings and the army playing a minimal role. That was the official line from back in the 60s. It is mentioned a little bit in the in the high school textbooks and does come up in pu- public discourse occasionally.
1: What was life like for the people under those years of Suharto, 33 years in all? What censorship and repression was present and who were the main sufferers of that?
0: The main thrust of the political system during that period was basically aimed at doing away with or minimising or negating as much as possible any participation in, po- in politics by the popular classes, by workers or peasants, and so on. So only three parties were allowed. Only one trade union was allowed, which was under strict government control. There were not- only one present union was allowed, which was under strict government control. So basically, in terms of ordinary people being able to carry out a political struggle for their rights or improvements in their conditions, that was pretty much pretty much impossible. Because the organization simply didn't exist. Sometimes there would be single factory strikes or present or st- struggles in this or that individual village, which were usually repressed pretty harshly. It was university students who would take on the, the big national issues, and there were movement uprisings in 74 and 78, and then again through the course of the 1990s, that happened again with with students joining with some workers and presence and actions again. And it was that 1990 student movement that finally created enough uh, opposition for the Indonesian ruling class to give up Suharto to try and bring some peace to the country to stop the opposition escalating.
1: What did that repression of many sectors of society mean for the development of Indonesia in an economic sense?
0: Well, from the 60s on, Indonesia basically pursued a policy of integrating itself into the global economy uh, on conditions that were set by uh, big capital in the United States and and Western Europe, in particular. So, the economy has grown pretty steadily from the 60s through to now, at maybe between four to six percent a year. But the growth, if you on the look the quality of the growth, it's basically been a growth in the export of commodities, minerals, timber, uh, palm oil, and so on, with uh, only very modest growth in manufacturing. So you've got a very thin form of development despite the actual growth in the overall size of the economy. But even after that 30 years of 5% growth, you still have a situation where the per capita income averaged out is still only $4,000 per year. And then, when you take into account how that fairly minimal wealth is uh, redistributed, then the majority of the population are you know, living in, on a bare minimum of an income or only slightly above that, with very little prospects in the future for their children or grandchildren.
1: What about in the rural areas, big populations?
0: Indonesia is a very big country, and the conditions in the rural areas varies very much from island to island. One thing that did happen during the early days of Suhata was the Green Revolution in rice production. So rice production increased dramatically during the first 10 years of his rule, which did have a softening impact for a lot of people living in the rural, rural areas. But the big problem now is, of course, that as the population has grown... Indonesia has 260 million people. A very large proportion of the population has had to move to the towns because rice agriculture and other agriculture just cannot absorb labour. So they've moved to the towns. So you have a very large urban population. Maybe 50 to 60 percent of the population now lives in medium and large towns or cities, which is very different than it was in the 1960s. So you've got a, a very big semi proletarian or informal sector, again, living on quite minimal minimal incomes.
1: How did the Chinese segment of the population cope under those years of Sahato?
0: Well, the Chinese community was also, their fate was dependent on what social class they belonged to because if you were a Chinese a capitalist, but a Chinese Indonesian businessman, you are protected by regime. So, a big proportion of domestic business, domestic large businesses in Indonesia during the 70s and 80s and 90s was able to be grown by Chinese Indonesian uh, business people, often collaborating closely with the Sahata family or one of the other dominant families. So, that was, um, if you're in that class, you could say you were uh, benefiting, benefiting quite a lot from the the Sahata period, if you were a Chinese-Indonesian working-class person or middle-class person or professional, how would you, suffer? you faced the same problems as the rest of society. But in addition to that, you faced some institutionalized discrimination so that no one was allowed to use Chinese language script. There was Chinese holidays, religious holidays and so on were were not celebrated. So there was a, a sort of suppression of Chinese culture during that period, which was basically operated as a form of oppression on the Chinese community as a whole. But it, the burden fell most on the, um, the Chinese lower middle class and, and working people. There's quite In some islands, there's quite a lot of Chinese present farmers and so on. It depends on which island you're talking about,
1: can you talk a bit more about the events leading up to Suharto's demise in 1998? Who were the main figures?
0: Well, there was a, a long process starting in the in the late 1980s, when student activists started to organise more systematically against the the Suharto regime. By the early 1990s, some of those student activists had formed. A, Small political party, the People's Democratic Party, or PRD, and they became the, the spearhead of growing uh, organised unrest among students and then amongst workers and farmers. As that momentum picked up, other groups also joined in and participated. So that by 1996, 1997, there were several very large, very, very, very large uh, demonstrations, protests, mobilizations, strikes, which started to undermine the stability of the Sahata regime, which then gave courage to some of the members of the elite who were disenfranchised from Suharto, people like Megawati sukarno Potri and Abdul Wahid, various, you might call them loyal opposition figures, became more emboldened as the student movement became, uh, got stronger and stronger. And then, um, Basically, the student protests, combined with protests by ordinary people, exploded in 1970-1998, scaring the Indonesian ruling class quite a a bit that they they might escalate. So rather than the the protests and mobilisations escalate, they basically took various actions to make sure that Suharto would resign, uh, which they hoped would demobilise most of the opposition, which it did.
1: Did he resist?
0: Not really, Sahata, no, not. In the last weeks, no, I think it was pretty clear when, he, when the you know, majority of his cabinet ministers resigned and I think uh, leaders of the, of the army were also telling him that you know, it would be better if he fade out as well. So there's a lot of pressure on Sahata from within the ruling circles because uh, they were quite scared that the popular protest movement Might start demanding not only the removal of Suharto, but the removal of all of them if they didn't um, make some concessions.
1: Did the Suharto family have a lot to lose if their father was gone? I'm thinking of the children and what they've been up to all of those years.
0: Well, there was some talk at that time that the, the, the family's businesses might be threatened, but basically, of course, on the one hand, their businesses survived. And, all, and the Sahata family, the children, remain amongst you know, the remain very wealthy in the Indonesian context. They don't dominate uh, wealth the way they did during the Sahata years because they no longer have that crony like connection with the dictator at the centre of power. But they're still quite, they're quite still quite substantial businesses. They're still uh, very wealthy people in the Indonesian context. They're no longer the most wealthy like they used to be, but they're certainly extremely wealthy people in the business world today.
1: You've written that slowly the genesis of the struggle to dig up the legacies the country has been denied, have begun. Can you explain that?
0: I think before 1965, in fact, from, from right at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, in, in around the late 1890s even, mm-hmm through the whole struggle against colonialism, then after independence, the the struggle to establish some kind of democratic socialist state meant that Indonesia had a very strong tradition of mass mobilisation, of popular politics, of progressive ideology for at least 60, 70 years of its early existence. Uh, After 65, because of the killings, the bannings of so many books and writings and, and thinkers and uh, 30, 33 years, or in fact, you could say it's now 50 years, really, of an education system and the media which just refuses to talk about that 60 years of progressive and popular politics, it means young generation now simply have they have really no idea of the history of Indonesia beyond the previous 10, beyond really the period they've experienced themselves. Even the struggle of the opposition to Suharto during the 70s, 80s and 90s, they have a very little familiarity with. Although I must say there's certainly, you can see amongst high school students and young university students today, a definite increase in interest in finding out about all of that.
1: And where do they have to go to find out?
0: the bookshops, and the internet. There are a lot of independent booksellers now selling all sorts of books that you know, 10 years ago you wouldn't dream of finding in Indonesia. And of course on the internet, uh, many groups, individuals, publishers, are putting all sorts of uh, Indonesian language as well as English language material on the internet. So it's not difficult. If you want to find out about that history now, it's not difficult to come across the materials you need either in the bookshops not all the bookshops but there's so a lot of new independent bookshops and publishers now or on the internet.
1: Can I ask you Max when and why you became involved and interested in Indonesian politics and society?
0: Uh, just like coincidence you know like in the 1960s, late sixties, early 70s like thousands of other university students at the time we backpacked through Southeast Asia, and, and um, my backpacking was slightly different because I was actually studying Indonesian language and history at University of Sydney. So when I backpacked through Indonesia back then, when I was 17, 18, or 19 years old, or whatever I was, the fact that I was studying the country brought me into contact with uh, Indonesians who were political, and I made I made many uh, friends with political uh, Indonesian political activists, and that's really what um, kept me in touch with Indonesia all these years. And then when I became more politically active in Australia itself and seeing that Australian foreign policy was so tied to supporting a dictatorship in Indonesia and supporting that dictatorship's occupation of East Timor, then my relationship with Indonesia, which was... From the very beginning political became even more political
1: how were you able here in australia or perhaps going to indonesia to interact with those activists prior to the downfall of suharto
0: oh well you know indonesia was always a country seeking the maximum number of tourists so you know their, their immigration and visa policies always made it relatively easy to get into indonesia so it's just a matter of, of, of uh, be, being based in Indonesia and and uh, being based in Australia and going back and forth. That wasn't a particularly uh, complicated problem. I did work in Indonesia a couple of times in the early 70s and then the early 80s, but during the 80s and 90s, it was a question of going back and forth, keeping in con- contact with people by phone and email and so on. It was yeah basically a back and forth kind of situation.
1: What happened to those young activists of the late eighties, early nineties, through to nineteen ninety eight? Where did they end up?
0: All over the place. Some got uh, impatient or disappointed and frustrated with uh, their political trajectory and and uh, went and joined conservative and right wing parties. Some dropped out of politics altogether. Some have become active in uh, NGOs. Uh, Some have become civil servants in in, um, different ministries. Some have become academics. But also we'll have to note that although if you want to compare it with the 1990s, it's probably a minority of that particular group, but there is uh, quite a few who who, who are active in one of the three or four of the left-wing political groups that are are ongoing or or become trade union leaders or leaders in human rights uh, movement organisations. So they dispersed a lot after 1998, but with a significant grouping, staying active in progressive politics and playing a role in the rather hard task at the moment of rebuilding that.
1: And where is that popular movement? Is that encompassing... The peasants, the unionists, the students? Is it widespread?
0: No, I would would have to be be honest, it's still quite small at the moment. The progressive, there are progressive trade unions, but they're quite small. There are progressive uh, farmer unions, but they're quite small. There are three or four progressive university student organizations, but they're also very small. So it's, it's been stuck at the rather Small scale for the last several years, and I think that might continue for for at least a little bit longer before um, we start to see a momentum again. The problem now, of course, is that you have to convince people to change the whole system. Before 1998, you could present the argument that the country was suffering because you had a dictator and the issue was to get rid of the dictatorship. Well, you don't have a dictator anymore. There are, except in West Papua, there are almost no political prisoners in Indonesia. There's no uh, newspapers banned. There's no uh, other media outlets banned. The internet, you can find anything from extreme left to extreme right material in Indonesian language on the internet. So you don't have a dictatorship, but you have a situation where, if you want to start a progressive movement, what you and you think that. Uh, really good changes needed to improve the plight of you know 220 million workers and peasants in Indonesia. You have to convince people to change the whole structure, to change the whole system, and that of course is is a harder task in the current uh, climate than convincing people under a dictatorship that you need to get rid of a dictator.
1: Is radical Islam in Indonesia strong?
0: Yes, of course, Indonesia has always had a two or three conservative Islamic political parties back, right back from the 1920s until now. Uh, in
2: elections,
0: conservative Islamic political parties get 25 to 30 percent of the vote. Of the 25 to 30 you, percent, you might have another, you might have within that 5 percent or 10 percent, hard to put numbers on it, who are of the more extremist uh, kind of have the more experienced kind of Islamic politics, and then you have uh, uh, groups that don't participate in elections at all who organise outside the electoral sphere, and even underground ones who carry out uh, acts of violence. They're of course, also quite small but quite persistent in their activity.
1: Finally, Max, at the same time, we've got a new Sahato preparing to stand for Parliament. Tommy.
0: Yes, the, the Sahata family actually has actually established two new political parties uh, which have managed to get registered for the elections which will be held in 2019. So one by a daughter, another one's run by Tommy Sahata, but some of his other relatives are also in that party, so at the moment they're scoring very, very low in the polls if if the elections were held today and those polling results were accurate, they certainly would not be elected to, to Parliament. Uh, they wouldn't get in. However, the elections are still several months away and uh, the Saharto family still has lots and lots of money and I think during that eight months we, it's hard to predict exactly what they will get up to, what the tactics will be, what the manoeuvre will be. I'm sure tonnes of money will be spent about. Tommy Saharto himself... Is standing in an electorate in Papua, in West Papua, uh, where, the, where the, uh, you know, the, the numbers of people are not so in, a, in an electorate are not so high, and who knows, we're spreading a lot of money around what might happen. But at the moment, in the pollings, in the polling, they don't they don't register as uh, significant political parties at all. Not at the moment, anyway.
1: That's all I have, Max. Is there anything you'd like to finish with?
0: No, that's that's fine. Thank you. Okay.
1: And that's Max Lane, former Australian activist and academic, now living and working in Indonesia. And it's 24 minutes past 5 o'clock here at 3CR. Last month, two influential Palestinian women visited Melbourne. The first we heard on the program last week, Dr. Alfred Mahon the director of the Palestine Women's Humanitarian Organisation in the Borj Brojna refugee camp in Beirut, Lebanon, nurse, educator and the author of Tears for Tashisha. The town where her grandparents and other family members were forced out at gunpoint in 1948 and, like all Palestinian refugees, refused the right of return by Israel. The book is available through AU The second woman who you will hear in a moment is Noura Erekat, a Palestinian-American legal scholar, human rights attorney, and activist, writer, and much more. She spoke at the Theatrette at the State Library, and what follows is a slightly edited talk by Noura.
3: Thank you so much, Nasser. Thank you to all of you. What an honor it's been to be here. I've been in Adelaide, Sydney, now Melbourne. And I must tell you, you might need a reminder from somebody coming in from far away on the outside. You are doing incredible work just phenomenal work in shifting the needle culturally, socially, politically on these questions to integrate the question of Palestine from this far distant issue to something that is co-constitutive with everything that we believe justice is comprised of. So I applaud you for this phenomenal work that you're doing and allowing me to be part of the legacy that you're creating here on this settler colonial island. So what I'm going to do is something that helps us think through Palestine intersectionally. And in the work that we're doing as a global human movement, where none of our issues and our struggles are are actually disentangled works here. And so how do we think through that? In late September 2017, U.S. President Donald Trump called on NFL, National Football League owners, to fire players who took a knee during the national anthem. It was yet another Trump display of vulgar disrespect and abuse. Late night comedy show host Trevor Noah, in response to this, made light of the situation, putting Trump's call in context with the critique of ESPN correspondent Jamil Hill, who was put on probation because she criticized Trump by the news network, by the sports news network, as well as mass protests across the U.S. Trevor Noah summed up his segment with a poem. He said, it's wrong to do it in the tweets, you cannot do it on the field, you cannot do it if you've kneeled, and don't do it if you're rich, you ungrateful son of a, because there's one thing that's a fact, you cannot protest if you're black. And in that moment of sarcastic commentary that has come to epitomize our most trusted news sources, our comedy news sources, our parodies, I was struck with the parallels of my own experience as a Palestinian. Like other Palestinian activists, our protest seems to generate more ire than the conditions propelling us into action. If any of you saw an interview I was able to do with the Australian Broadcast Corporation that was clearly on display, where the newscaster was more concerned with attention in the Human Rights Council of Israel's violation than he was of Israel's human rights violations. Almost everything that we do in protest has been framed as a risk, a threat, a potential lawsuit that for generating discomfort. As if we, marginalized communities, are mere shadows of an actual body that experiences pain. Consider that during the height of one of the largest prisoner strikes in Palestine in April 2017, when 1,000 prisoners inflicted harm on their own bodies to demand basic rights, the Israeli government declared that it would discipline the prisoners for their deviance. Instead of lauding Palestinians long and excessively chastised for failing to be more like Gandhi, Israel's intelligence minister demanded, quote, the death penalty for terrorists who joined the hunger strike. In the United States, in July 2017, the Senate proposed anti-BDS legislation to make participation in the boycott of Israel a felony punishable by minimum civil penalty of $250,000 and a maximum criminal criminal penalty of $1 million and 20 years in prison. Far from applauding our global, nonviolent, grassroots movement, Netanyahu has declared it the second most significant threat to Israel after a nuclear capable Iran. Twenty two states have passed anti BDS legislation to trample from the top down what they cannot defeat from the bottom up. As I listened to Trevor Noah and witnessed yet another attack on black protest, I was struck by the resonance of Israeli and US tactics, government and societal, that criticize and criminalize protest in order to obscure the root causes of violence that shape our lives and as a means to perpetuate an oppressive status quo. Intersectionality invites us to think about the entwinements of our oppression, not the sameness of our condition, about the similarities in the modalities of repression, it invites us to think about the entwinements of our liberation as inextricable and mutually reinforcing rather than mutually exclusive. Thinking Palestine intersectionally is obviously not new, but present and re- recent circumstances have made it more urgent and compelling. And so what I'd like to do in the rest of the presentation is to trace the junctures on the ground in activism as well as academic knowledge production that have led to this current political moment when we are thinking to and responding to Palestine in an intersectional framework and not just a national liberation struggle for Palestinians, but something that represents liberation for all of us. Admittedly, I do this based on my own positionality within the United States, another settler colony. So this does not adequately capture the global scope of this thinking, and I look forward to our discussion where you add add to it. Since armed Palestinian factions took took the helm of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1968, the Palestinian struggle for liberation has been part of and often central to global third world struggles against colonialism and neocolonialism. Throughout the 1970s, the non-aligned movement considered the liberation of Palestine from Israeli domination as part of the same agenda to liberate Mozambique and Angola from Portuguese rule, as well as South Africa and Namibia from European Afrikaner and German Afrikaner rule, respectively. The PLO was a member of the NAM and a leading force in establishing the 1977 additional protocols that legitimated the right to use armed force against oppressive colonial structures and subject it to legal regulation. It was the PLO that was part of the movement that basically brought non-state use of force within the ambit of legal regulation. So it shifted from being criminal and terroristic to actually being legitimate warfare. We forget that today, obviously, for obvious reasons. Palestine is the only nation among these nations that has yet to achieve liberation, and that is largely because of the U.S.'s unequivocal economic, diplomatic, and military support to Israel. For a progressive left movement concerned with internationalism then and now, the U.S.'s unequivocal support for Israel is emblematic of everything that is wrong with U.S. foreign policy, And I understand Australian foreign policy as well. In 1975, and at the height of the rise of the global south, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution declaring Zionism as a form of racism and as a part of a broader global effort to undermine racism, particularly as practiced in apartheid South Africa. The 1993 Oslo Accords and the peace process it ushered marked a significant shift away from this framework. Not only did the PLO rescind the resolution as a condition for entering into a peace agreement, the peace process framework shifted the global perception of the Palestinian struggle from one against settler colonial elimination and domination to one about peacemaking. It reframed the entire issue as a conflict between two equal parties that required compromise by both sides to achieve a resolution. The shift was palpable in grassroots efforts featuring dialogue groups as well as in knowledge production. According to a search on ProQuest, which is um, an academic search engine, The number of journal articles on Palestine and specifically if you search for conflict resolution and peace building spikes from 100 records for every decade between 1967 and 1989 to 900 records a year between 1990 and 1999. The start of the second intifada, also known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada in September 2000, planted the seeds for yet a new shift. The first seven years of peace had increased settlement growth in the West Bank by 100% and introduced a new system of bypass roads and checkpoints and demonstrated the permanence of interim agreements in the form of autonomy rather than independence. And I want to emphasize this point. So much of our public advocacy focuses on and emphasizes, look at the bypass road where you have two different colored license plates to determine who can drive there. Look at these checkpoints that makes the distance, for example, between Bethlehem and Ramallah twice as long or hours more long. I wanted to say Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but most Bethlehemites can probably not enter Jerusalem at all. My point is to emphasize that this system of checkpoints and bypass roads is a product of the peace process. It's ushered in by the 1995 accords known as Oslo II. We didn't have this system before. The occupation was marked by external domination. I think this is a point that we miss when we overemphasize you know, our desire for peace and our, and our lamentation at this system of spatial separation and segregation and fail to note that it's not in spite of Oslo but because of Oslo that we have these conditions. The collapse of the Camp David talks in 2000 precipitated the renewed uprising, which was much more militarized than its predecessor in the late 80s. Israel responded with unprecedented force, unavailable to it under occupation law. It created new law, literally created new law for fighting terrorists and in effect a new means of maintaining colonial dominance. It didn't declare its confrontation with Palestinians as war, Because if it did, it would have to adopt one of two frameworks. Either it's a non-international armed conflict, in which case it could do almost anything it wants, as the Syrian regime is doing to its population right now, and it's called a civil war. Or it would have to recognize this as an international armed conflict against guerrilla fighters. The former it didn't want to adopt because then it would actually have to recognize that it oversees a singular apartheid regime. If it's a civil war, it actually has Palestinians in its jurisdictions that it excludes from its citizenry. And in the latter framework of recognizing it as an international armed conflict, it would have to recognize that Palestinians are a people with a right to self-determination, which it's denied. So instead, Israel created a new category called armed conflict short of war. Because if it it just recognized that it was an occupying power, it can't use lethal force. It had to use just law enforcement force. So it creates this whole new category that the entire world rejects, including the United States. But obviously, in September 2001, al-Qaeda attacks the United States and creates a new set of laws, even for the U.S., At this point, the U.S. breaks with a historic opposition of recognizing non-state activity as within the the realm of criminal law to declaring in the Security Council and U.N. Security Council Resolutions 1368 and 1373 that the Al-Qaeda attacks constituted a use of force that triggers Article 51 or the right to self-defense for the U.S. to use force in response. What does all that mean in law? It means that the U.S. is shifting from criminal domestic policing of what it considers terrorist activities to militarized force against those activities. What does that do on the global scale is that it gives the belligerent the opportunity to use the military force, but makes sure that the the target can't use that force in response. And we can argue whether or not we think that's useful, necessary, da-da-da-da-da. The distinction here. And what the International Court of Justice determines in its 2004 advisory opinion on the root of the wall is that Israel, because Israel tries to draw on these Security Council resolutions, that Israel cannot do that because Israel is responsible. It is actually obligated to protect and is responsible for the law and order in the occupied territories from where its uh, threats emerge. But of course, Israel keeps pushing back and is creating new law that now we recognize and that's obviously captured when we think about what it's doing is the use of extrajudicial assassinations. But instead, we know them now as targeted killings.
1: You are listening to a talk by Noura Arakat, a Palestinian-American legal scholar who was in Melbourne last month.
3: Israel's knowledge production industry its military, and its political forces immediately seized the opportunity to collapse its novel military approach with the U.S.'s war on terror. Together with the siege and murder of Yasser Arafat, the peace process experiment was effectively over by 2001, notwithstanding ongoing farcical attempts to hold it up on stilts. The end of the peace process in my opinion, has engendered two distinct trends. One is the framing of Palestine as a national security issue, and the other is the return to Palestine as a justice issue. Regarding the former, between 1990 and 1999, there was a total of 655 records, scholarly and media, framing Palestine as a security matter. But now, search in ProQuest, irregular combat, asymmetric conflict, counterterrorism, and that number skyrockets to 5,456 records between 2000 and 2009. On the ground, Israel's militarization of the conflict reached its apex when it placed Gaza under a naval blockade and land siege in 2007 and began launch large-scale military offensives against its besieged population in 2008. Israel, literally transformed the tiny coastal enclave into what Professor Samara Asmir has described as a colonial laboratory for asymmetric warfare, for weapons as well as new methods of war. The return to a justice framework collided with Israel's security approach in ways that resonated with a decades-long struggle that framed Palestinians as freedom fighters on the one hand and terrorists on the other. At the 2001 Durban Review Conference on Global Racism, a legacy of the decade against racism inaugurated in 1975, global participants highlighted Israeli apartheid as part of its anti-racist platform. Professor Nadine Neber, along with other collaborators, led a front of these efforts by authoring a paper, The Forgotten-ism, an Arab-American woman's perspective on Zionism, racism, and sexism detailing the entwinements of feminism and the question of Palestine more generally. The paper never enjoyed the substantive engagement it deserved. The United States undermined the entire anti-racist agenda to shield Israel from accusations of apartheid and to protect itself from having to deal with the question of reparations, which it has still not paid out to its formerly enslaved population and their descendants. In 2005, the largest swath of Palestinian civil society organizations launched the global call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions based on a rights-based framework and inspired by the global divestment movement targeting apartheid South Africa. Knowledge production also evidenced this return to a justice framework, whereas scholars published 78 articles concerning Palestine as a case of settler colonialism between 1990 and 1999, that number spikes to 952 scholarly articles published between 2001 and 2009, thanks to the efforts of scholars like Meznakato, Omar Jabari Salamanca, and Karim Rabai, who are among a multitude of scholars who are doing this phenomenal work in knowledge production. And every piece from every angle counts when we're doing this work. The two trends of national security and the justice framework collided in the summer 2014 when Israel launched its most brutal military offensive against Palestinians in Gaza and when the Black Lives Matter movement congealed into mass protests in Ferguson, Missouri, in response to yet another state-sanctioned murder of an unarmed black boy named Michael Brown. Especially because of activism on the ground, a resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity commenced, and with it a more acute understanding of Palestine as a case of settler colonialism and structural racialized violence. The systematic and untenable nature of Israel's wars on the Gaza Strip, together with the most right-wing Knesset vowing there will never be a Palestinian state, ever, 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 I emphasize that because Israel keeps saying there will never be a Palestinian state. And Palestinians keep getting asked, why don't they recognize Israel as a state, even though they did that multiple times over? Anyway, the ironies are are endless. But this made ever more clear the fallacy of the peace process. The result was the steady ascendance of understanding Palestine within a justice framework. The resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity, which is specifically a phenomenon in North America, uh, featured delegations to the region, knowledge production, cultural work, and joint protest that culminated in the summer 2016 when the BLM endorsed BDS as part of its platform for black lives. Significantly, several establishment Zionist institutions denounced the platform. It was a 36,000-word platform, authored by the Movement for Black Lives in the United States about their demands of what black liberation would look like that went from police abolition, reform, education as a constitutional right, basic security to housing and food. And of that 36,000-word document, all the mainstream media emphasized was the BLM's endorsement of BDS and its characterization of the conditions of Palestine as genocide and slammed, slammed the movement, rescinded funding, canceled events, threatened them. And I must tell you that in this moment, they weren't ready for this. The movement did not expect this backlash. And when they got it, They convened a call. The authors convened a call with all of the organizations that had signed onto the platform and gave everybody, something like 200 organizations, the opportunity to pull out of the platform. The BLM said it wouldn't pull out, but gave everyone the opportunity to pull out. And only one organization took that opportunity. The rest stood firm. The reasons they pull out are actually not to do with principle, but circumstances funding communities that may depend on them for survival. So it isn't even necessarily political, and still the other organizations take that risk, which is the more important point. This was yet another instance of shutting down critically principled conversations when they refuse to exceptionalize and absolve Israel's racism. The BLM's endorsement is pivotal and the reason for major cultural boycott victories in recent history, including Ms. Lauren Hill's cancellation of her concert in Tel Aviv and NFL defensive lineman Michael Bennett's decision not to travel to Israel as part of a government sponsored junket. Both Hill and Bennett didn't know a lot about Palestine, but they knew that the BLM, that the movement for black liberation in the United States saw its future entwined with Palestinian liberation. When Bennett announced his cancellation, he wrote a dear world letter. And in it, he writes, quote, I know that this will anger some people and inspire others. But please know that I did this not for you, but to be in accord with my own conscience. Like 1968 Olympian John Carlos always says, there is no partial commitment to justice. You are either in or you're out. Well, I'm in. This brings us to the present moment marked by the ascendance of Donald J. Trump and a complete and unapologetic embrace of white supremacy. The Trump administration has waged a barefaced and frontal assault against indigenous, black, Muslim, and Latino communities. It has fomented hostility against Iran, though I think by accident has achieved some sort of rapprochement with North Korea rolled back a commitment to climate change and emboldened white supremacist movements in the United States. So even if the state's not doing it, the spike in the number of white communities and individuals who feel like they can call the police on black people doing the most basic things, like distributing newspapers, having a barbecue, all without a permit, And not understanding that when you call the police on black people in the United States, it becomes a 50-50 chance of life and death based on a single unexpected move. But it's emboldened them to do that. Because if the president and the government does it, then it's okay for them to have these feelings. And this reflects, frankly, and we can talk about this, but this reflects the inadequacy of the law in order to actually dismantle racism. In the United States, we never dismantled racism. We had an enfranchisement law in 1965 and the end of de jure segregation in the Civil Rights Act in 1964. That's it. We removed impediments to equality, but we didn't ensure equality or equity. And we're seeing it. We're seeing the inadequacy of that kind of law-based approach to justice. But for better or for worse... This movement and what Trump is doing in this rise in white supremacy has further entrenched the question of Palestine into a progressive left movement driven by an intersectional analysis best in- exemplified and captured by the case of Rasmiya Odeh. I have a lot of love for Rasmiya. She's a Palestinian freedom fighter, a former political prisoner, she's a torture survivor including sexual torture. She spent two decades in the United States empowering Arab immigrant women in the Chicago area. She literally picked up uh, the Yellow Pages and called every Arab-looking name to find Arab-American women who were not represented in the academy, in the movement, and other mainstream spaces, but who were probably obscured in their homes, here on a visa, non-English speaking, definitely not citizens yet, oftentimes illiterate. And she creates an organization of 800 Arab women, Yemeni, Iraqi, Palestinian, Sudani, in the Chicago area. This is a woman who's leading from the bottom up quiet, quietly as an unsung hero. She's also accused of planting a bomb in a Jerusalem market in 1968. She was released in a prisoner exchange, and the confession that actually leads to this indictment, was the result of the extreme torture imposed upon her. And she was among the signatories endorsing the Women's Strike March on March 8th, uh, 8th, 2017, including Dr. Angela Davis. In response to her endorsement and the Women's March embrace of her, liberal and right-wing publications began an onslaught against her as a convicted terrorist and an illegal immigrant. The Women's March platform also endorsed Palestinian liberation, and these created incredible uh, controversy in the United States about Aude and Palestine, but more generally about feminism and whether we should understand feminism as a single-issue matter concerning womanhood or something much broader than that. The New York Times ran an op-ed expressing this anxiety where the author writes, quote, Increasingly, I worry that my support for Israel will bar me from the feminist movement, that an aiming to be inclusive has come to insist that feminism is connected to a wide variety of political causes. This insistence can alienate feminists like myself who don't support all the causes others should believe should be a part of feminism. For example, some who identify as feminists may not agree with the organizers of the International Women's Strike when they call for a $15 minimum wage. Nor do all feminists necessarily join the strike organizers in supporting the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters. The New York Times, by the way, would never, ever publish an op-ed by a self-identifying feminist disparaging a $15 minimum wage or disparaging the Standing Rock Sweet Sioux tribe fighting for its land and to protect its water sources. But! The liberal establishment can easily attack Palestine and Rasmiya Ode, who is part of the Women's March. Indeed, as the attacks on the Durban Racism Conference and the BLM demonstrate, attacks on Palestine have historically functioned as an entry point to undermine progressive agendas globally. It's the back door when you can't do it and a frontal offensive. But in this political moment, there has been little tolerance for the disaggregation of a progressive platform. The attacks on Oda and Palestine were read as white, liberal, feminist attacks on an entire movement. No one relented, creating an ideological split and suggested that the days for peps, you all have this word, progressive except for Palestine, are almost over. This is a continuing trend in the United States, and barring unknown circumstances, it's likely to become more pronounced. Support for Israel will increasingly become part of a conservative platform and less of a bipartisan issue between Republicans and Democrats. Polls already indicate as much. According to a 2016 Pew Research poll, the share of liberal Democrats who sympathize with Palestinians doubled since 2014. For the first time, More liberal Democrats are sympathetic to Palestinians than they are to Israel. And support for Israel is the least among millennials, demonstrating a telling generational gap. These are positive trends. And these trends come with tremendous responsibility and urge us to rethink the horizon of Palestinian liberation as well. For example... How might the application of an anti-racist framework unsettle a stark native-settler binary between Jews and Palestinians? How has white supremacy in Israel racialized Middle Eastern Jews, for example, and forced them to deny their Arabness to pass, thus participating in what Ala Shahat, scholar Ala Shahat has described as an exercise in self-devastation? How does that inquiry reshape coalitions committed to emancipation? Or what other responsibilities does a pro-Palestine movement in the U.S. or in Australia have to anti-racist and settler decolonization movements? How are we actively and unknowingly reproducing the structures of domination even as we seek to resist them in the Middle East? These are very provocative questions. And I don't have the answers for them. But one thing that I'll emphasize is that so much of the work that we do is not about having answers, but it's about asking the right questions and asking different questions. It's what Dr. Angela Davis asks us to do when we consider abolition. The worst thing that you can think of and respond when you think of prison abolition is, but what will we do with all those criminals? The question that we should be asking is, How did certain crimes become commensurate with the punishment that's ascribed to them? How are certain people criminalized no matter what they do? And how is punishment needed irrespective of what you actually do, but for the very brazen act of existing? And so I urge us to ask these different questions at the very least. And from asking those questions, from organizing in that way, the answers that we seek will produce themselves. And as Dr. Davis reminds us, freedom is a constant struggle, and in it we can find the liberation we are fighting so hard to realize. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Palestinian-American scholar and human rights advocate Nora Arakat. She was speaking here in Melbourne about 10 days ago. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. by Law is here in just a moment, so I'll say bye for now.